right now. We're being told that there's a state of war uh, and a state of emergency. Uh, this We've had this before. We had this in January. And for several weeks, we had nonstop sirens and uh, nonstop chatter on the radio about the uh, threat from uh, radical Islam and uh, terrorist groups and so on. And so we're having a kind of a replay of that, but it has been, I think, accentuated. And we're going to have an intensification of the uh, media campaign, which is essentially a propaganda campaign to make people in France uh, fear uh, Muslims. Uh, we need to be clear about uh, the origin of the war on terror. The war on terror is, uh, I quote, orchestrated from abroad. These are the words uh, Francois Hollande used to describe this terrorist attack. Well, the attacks that have been uh, continuing to destroy Syria to uh, massacre its population have also been orchestrated from abroad. They were orchestrated by NATO, and they've been carrying these attacks out against the civilian population of Syria for four years now. And this is a terrorist campaign that is also orchestrated from abroad. And people in Europe need to understand that there is a war uh, that is becoming global, that is being waged against civilian populations in particular. It is a form of uh, neo-imperialism and neo-colonialism, which uh, aims to divide and conquer uh, European and uh, Middle Eastern and African and the world's population, for that matter, um, and to, to make them submit to a global order that uh, does not serve the interests of most of the people on this planet, but that does serve the interests of a very uh, few uh, ruling um, elite, a uh, very small, tiny, and particularly tyrannical ruling elite. There is no war on terror. There is a war uh, that is being waged using uh, proxy groups, terrorist proxy groups, and they are being used against uh, nation states who are resisting uh, US and uh, Israeli hegemony. And they are also being used as, uh, as a means of disciplining uh, the workforces in Europe. In a period of uh, mass unemployment and austerity, you now have uh, terrorist attacks being committed by terrorists funded, armed, and trained by Western intelligence agencies. There is no such thing as ISIS. ISIS is a creation of the United States. We know that from official sources of the US military themselves. Uh, declassified documents from the Defense Intelligence Agency have confirmed that. And the French are now, the French government is now attempting to drum up support for more military intervention in Syria. And what they want to do is they want to get in on the game. The game is almost lost. The Russians have routed much of the Islamic State. You now have Islamic State militants coming into Europe uh, disguised uh, as refugees. Uh, that will destabilize uh, Central Europe. And the French uh, government wants to, uh, to, to get in uh, on the game in Syria and prop up those so-called moderate rebels. There are no moderate rebels, of course, in Syria. There are uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS militants, terrorists who have been beheading people, eviscerating people, uh, absolutely creating chaos and genocide right across the region. And this does not serve, uh, this does not serve the Syrian people or, or, or anyone other than the Western corporate elites and their geopolitical interests. What, what do you expect France to do now in the light not only of Friday's terrorism, but 10 months on from Charlie Hebdo? It's not going to ease up on what it's doing, is it? 
No. Uh, the, the, look, the, the, this it, it much depends on how the French public will react. Whether they, if they will, uh, we are being bombarded now with a uh, media propaganda campaign. It's just non-stop talk. Uh, where we're told not to go out in the street. Uh, we're supposed to be fearful and and, and keep quiet and so on. Um, I think there is going to be a campaign against dissidents in France. They're very worried about um, the new media that has emerged in recent years, and they are very um, worried about the alternative media. So I think there you will see, uh, we saw this actually after the uh, attacks in January, you will see a conflation of terrorism and uh, dissidents. So uh, one of the tools which uh, the media, the mass media uses to discredit any kind of rational questioning of the established order, and particularly the war on terrorism, is to uh, deride those who would question the war on terrorism as conspiracy theorists. And I think you're going to see a crackdown on so-called conspiracy theorists and websites that actually uh, publish rational and honest analysis of what is happening. So you're going to see more of that type of intellectual terrorism, which is already at boiling point in France. I mean, it's got to the point now where you have um, professors um, in universities who are being intimidated. You have school teachers uh, who are basically uh, being fired for even suggesting that there may be a link between French imperialism and terrorism. There was one case recently, for example, of a, a school teacher who uh, almost lost his, lost his job when he suggested there might be a link between uh, French foreign policy and terrorism. So you, we are going through a period of uh, deep uh, intellectual terrorism. And of course, these uh, these random terrorist acts, which are a form of low-intensity uh, civil war, I think that the current crisis, the refugee crisis, which is really a form of coercive engineered migration, because they could have easily have been prevented, this form of coercive engineered migration is going to make this a lot worse, and it is going to create the conditions of civil war. It is a natural consequence, of course, of globalization, of financial capitalism. This is essentially what it leads to. I mean, it leads to a breakdown of society. And the only way in which they can kind of keep everybody down is by a uh, policy of divide and conquer. So you're going to see a situation where you've got a very much a Wahhabized working class in France. They're being Wahhabized by the allies of the French political elite, the Saudis and the Qataris. They're building Wahhabite mosques all over the place. Uh, and that is going to Wahhabize the youth. And they're going to be then used as pawns, if you like, in much bigger geopolitical wars, wars, proxy wars against Russia, proxy wars against Iran and the Middle East, and so on. And that is going to create massive social unrest. It's mm -hmm. going to divide working people uh, against each other. And uh, the only people who are going to actually benefit from this are the war contractors, the military industrial media intelligence complex. So in a, whatever way you look at this, I don't know who exactly did, uh, committed this attack and this atrocity. But uh, the real people who are responsible, whether directly or indirectly or consciously or unconsciously, is the French government, because they have been complicit in terrorism in the Middle East and all over Africa. And that needs to be understood. And if we don't understand that, this is going to continue and it's going to deteriorate. We will find ourselves in a situation under military uh, military uh, law, martial law, if this can I, can continues. So pick you up it really the, needs to be analyzed and understood. Can I pick you up on the issue of migrants and refugees? Because one of um, the terrorists appears to have been um, a French citizen, another a recent migrant to the country. What do you think this will do to France's policies towards the migrant crisis? 
Well, I think there is sufficient evidence to suggest strongly, in fact, that the current crisis, I mean, the, 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 the migration crisis is something that is ongoing, and there are different waves. You've got uh, different waves coming up from Libya, you've got the ones coming up from Syria and up through the Balkans. But the current re re kind of refugee crisis, as it were, is um, what uh, I would refer to as coercive uh, engineered migration. This is a term used by Kelly Greenhill, a U.S. academic, who wrote an interesting book on this, uh, whereby she shows that uh, migration can be used as a tool from by one state to destabilize another state. In this case, it's definitely being used by the United States and Turkey to destabilize the Balkans, uh, Mitteleuropa, which would be uh, Hungary, and of course Germany. And the reason, the geostrategic reasons of this are basically go back to classical uh, geopolitics, which is Halford McKinney theory uh, of the world of dividing the world island that is to say you divide um, the Eurasian Peninsula uh, from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea you create an intermarium there so that you prevent German and Russian unity and that is why Germany essentially is being uh, kind of overrun with with people who are themselves uh, victims of globalization, but they are now being instrumentalized and used as weapons of globalization. And this is one of the key uh, contemporary strategies of U.S. imperialism. You use the consequences of globalization as further tools to further globalization. And um, I think there is not going to be, there is no policy in Europe to 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 control uh, immigration or anything like that. I think that the, the, key, the key question here is not actually controlling immigration. The key question is stopping this geopolitical destabilization of Europe. Uh, and uh, some countries are attempting to do that. Hungary is attempting to do, do that. Bulgaria is attempting to a certain extent to do that. Um, in other words, trying to find out who's an actual refugee and who isn't. They're prioritizing women and children, for example, in Hungary. Um, that's a rational approach. But of course, uh, Viktor Orban of Hungary is being demonized by the European Union for his insistence on implementing the uh, laws of the European Union of, and of a Hungarian nation state. Here, you're, you're in a situation where the French government is totally uh, uh, subordinate to U.S. dictates. This is a country that has been completely taken over by U.S. imperialism, just as Germany. And France doesn't really have a foreign policy. It does okay. whatever Washington tells it to do. Okay. It's um, always good to get your thoughts on this. Gerard O'Connor, thanks very much for joining us from Paris this Saturday evening. Evening. Like a great bird in a blue sky over a blue ocean, civilized men fly! Repeat, repeat, clouds of beautiful rainbows with the power and the speed and the will to succeed. Repeat, men fly! No need to jump around through the ash, the rubble, and the mud. Or even worse, to put a perfectly spit shot for a brand new level of on the dirty dusty ground. Oh, sure, you could mobilize a million troops. Although a thousand could probably get the job done. But then, people start to ask questions. So when you drop in out of the white clouds in a blue sky, don't worry about them having to see the whites in your blue eyes. Just let that payload fly and wing on home, my son. It's not your way to die. And when the crying starts, you won't have to see the bloodshed eyes turn red. And when the dying stops, you won't have to know a thing about who's dead. This is your mission.
Welcome to the Weekly Review. It is November 20th, 2015, and uh, last week had more of a, an uplifting overall episode, and today that's just not the case. Uh, it's not going to be. So, uh, start off with, I uh, like to get to the bottom of things, and of course, the, everything is complex. There are, there's histories, there's roots to problems, there's multi- faceted ways just of looking at everything and uh i am by no means a scholar on any of this uh yet when something happens we seem to hear everyone kind of spouts their opinions and a lot of it is unlearned a lot of it is biased um a lot of it comes out of a state of fear and anger and so i've kind of mostly i guess laid low in the past week or so and i mean the thing that happens though is that there's there's violence that's if you listen to this show, if you listen to it at least once, there is constantly just reports on violence that happen, whether it's happening here in the States or happening abroad, it's a constant. It's been happening all over the world for a very, very, very long time, unfortunately. And so I think uh, something that uh, I think some folks, it just depends on what people want to talk about or feel the need to talk about or uh feel pressed to talk about and also it's important to see which which stories make the media whether it be the mass media or whether it makes makes social media and then from there what do people say about it and do people want to try to understand it or do people want to just act out as i said of fear and so i wanted to start off the show by playing an interview with someone who sounds like they know what they're talking about and really gets down to the complexities and also says a lot of things that maybe people don't want to hear i think a lot of the times especially when something really terrifying happens uh, it's easy to go to this us versus them mentality, which is, of course, how wars get started and get funded, certainly. This idea of us versus them without any regard to why things happen or what what makes an us and them. 
and what makes people act violently, certainly. And also, which violence is okay and somehow accepted, which I think is something really important to look at. And especially within this country and of a lot of countries, their violence has been just an ongoing thing. And if it's questioned in any way, then people somehow take offense to that, which is ridiculous. Yet we live in a very, uh, there's just violence all the time. There is uh, on a lot of levels. And it's it's, it's something that people don't necessarily experience or think they experience, but it's kind of, it happens on a lot of levels and it doesn't just happen with physical violence. There's like emotional violence and psychological violence. And even the fact that people don't have housing here, that's violence. People that don't have access to healthcare and food, I think that's violence. And then there's microaggressions too. So just because someone's not being physically assaulted doesn't mean that uh, someone might not be hurt. And that can be just in the way that people treat each other and things people say to each other and the way people maintain space and keep people out of space, uh, I think is really, uh, really important. So just to discuss that and to acknowledge that that happens as well. And it's not like, oh, here's this one thing that's happening. Oh my gosh. It's yes, of course. Oh my gosh. And then also, oh my gosh, it's happening all the time everywhere in a lot of ways. And a lot of times people talk about it and other people uh, seem to dismiss it. So that's, that's what's been going on. And it seems like uh, the world's become a little bit more polarized in terms of people who are actually acknowledging that things and systems need to change. And then those who are um, content with the, the status quo, which is really fucked up and really damaging to a lot of people. So that's my opening rant. And I'll get into some news stories. And the, the song we heard was uh, from Ted Leo and the Pharmacist, and that's called uh, Bomb, Repeat, Bomb, which pretty much says it all right there. And I, of course, enjoy playing music that has a message. And also, I enjoy the, the music it, itself in it, but also just the, the lyrics, too. And I there are songs out there, modern songs. And this, this came out like a while ago, but uh, modern songs that actually are political and address what's actually going on. So I wanted to start off with that. And... Uh, and also, just to get back to the the video um, I played starting off the show, because I feel like that just kind of set the tone, really, and uh, just can explain the complexities. And we talked about that a lot here on, on the show, the military-industrial complex, and a lot of the repercussions, a lot of the repercussions um, that, that, that that has. So I thought that was just really, uh, if you could say it, much much better than than I could and much better than a lot of us could and there's just definitely been like a lot of people spouting I had to go offline for a little bit because nothing that I was going to say was going to necessarily add uh add anything uh to it at all so just really wanted to make sure that that was heard and that was from uh, RT um our RT media and so uh yes and I'm looking for the the person's name so I can uh he was, his name was mentioned as uh, a journalist, and I'm having difficulty here. So uh, I'll try to get to that by the end of the, the program to give him credit for speaking the truth. And so I wanted to move along because now that there are, it, it's, uh, I, I mentioned improv sometimes, and there's like some different philosophies in improv that I like because it kind of translates to uh, waking life as well and that's one that philosophies if you're creating a world if one thing is true then what else is true of the world and that could be someone's behavior it could be of like their physical universe if one thing is true then what else is true so when we look at uh, acts of violence like this we need to see how people are responding and uh, the ways that uh, other folks respond to this and uh, something just to acknowledge is that it's not just 
one thing happens and nothing else happens. Things don't exist in a vacuum. People respond in a certain way. And there are certain people in this world who want violent things to happen. And we talk about them very much. And they're on my shit list. And they always will be on my shit list. And there's, they're weapons manufacturers. They're people who profit off of dealing weapons to people. And it's people like that whose living is based on making sure that people have guns. And that, I think, is pretty fucked up. And uh, I will reprimand them as, as often as I can because that does not help much at all. So this article comes from The Intercept and is written by Glenn Greenwald, and this was written on uh, November 16th. Uh, Stock prices of weapons manufacturers soaring since Paris attack. And this is, (laughs) Pam is here and has offered an ugh, and that's absolutely true. I mean, that's the thing. Ugh, it's, people are... People are profiting off it, and it's that's pretty disgusting. Uh, the Paris attacks took place on Friday night. Since then, France's president had vowed war on ISIS, and today significantly escalated the country's bombing campaign in Syria. France has been bombing ISIS in Iraq since last January and began bombing the group in Syria in September. Already this morning, as Aaron Cantu noticed, the stocks of the leading weapons manufacturers, what is usually referred to as the defense industry, haha, defense, defense of what, have soared. And they have a chart here of the Raytheon company, which um, has gone up now. It's uh, This is at least on the, uh, November 16th, was at 120.66, which has gone up 3.41, which is up 2.91%. Uh, next is the Northrop uh, Grumman Corporation. Um, up, it's uh, 184.57, and it's up uh, 5.75, and that's 3.22%. And next, Lockheed Martin, who we all know and despise, 218.39, up 5.23, which is uh, t- up 2.45%. And of General Dynamics Corporation, that's a stupid name. I'm just going to say that right there. One point, it's at 141.80. And I don't know much about stocks, but people are fucking investing money in weapons. It's so gross. All right, and that's up uh, 1.20, up 0.85%. Uh, also enjoying a fantastic day so far is one of the leading surveillance state profiteers, Booz Allen Hamilton. Boo! I will boo for Booz Allen uh, Holding Corporation. They're at 28.93, up 0.68, up 2.41%. France's largest arms manufacturer, Thales, is also having an outstanding day, up almost 3%, even as the leading French index is down. Uh, Note how immediate the increases are. The markets could barely wait to start buying. The Dow overall is up today only 0.12%, making these leaps quite pronounced. Reuters, as published on Fox Business, starkly noted the casual connection. Shares of aerospace and defense rose sharply on Monday in reaction to the attacks in France. The private sector industrial prong of the military and surveillance state always wins, but especially when the media's war juices start flowing. So there's something just really uh, important to to, to think about is just the reactions that uh, people have and ways people profit off war, and that's disgusting. But I got some I got some positive story. I got some positive things to it, and that's not everyone's freaking out, and not everyone is running afraid and fear and buying weapons. And this comes from Think Progress, and this is written by uh, Benish Ahmed, and this came out November 18th. Uh, After attacks, France increases its commitment to refugees. Uh, French President Francois Hollande promised to honor his commitment to take 
in tens of thousands of refugees on Wednesday. He said France would do so despite concerns raised by ultra-right nationalist leaders that refugees might pose a security threat to the country. Some people say the tragic events of the last few days have sown doubts in their minds, Hollande said, but added that it is a humanitarian duty to help the throngs of refugees who have landed on European shores after fleeing conflict and hardship in countries like Syria and Afghanistan. In a speech to mayors from around France, Hollande said France would welcome 30,000 refugees over the next two years. That's even more than the 24,000 he committed to accepting in September. Hollande said he would invest about $53.3 million uh, to help housing for refugees. Uh, he added that the refugees will undergo thorough security checks before entering the country, before addressing calls from the country's largest opposition parties, the ultra-right Front National. Acknowledging fears among many in France after 129 were killed in gun bomb attacks on Friday, Hollande said, it is our duty to protect our people. His decision sends a stronger message to sends a strong message to European countries like Poland, which have been less willing to take in refugees, and to the growing number of American governors who are attempting to block refugee resettlement in their home states. The fear that ISIS fighters might pose as refugees to carry out attacks in Europe or the U.S. were stoked by a Syrian passport was found uh, near the body of one of the men involved in the Paris attacks, although I've heard that's uh, false. Uh, Greek and Serbian authorities said that it was issued to a Syrian man who was registered as a refugee on the Greek island of Liros in October and later applied for asylum in, in Serbia. Many immigration experts and political leaders, however, um, have cast doubt on the connection oh, okay, between the attackers and the passports. They have noted that such humanitarian measures undermine ISIS's argument that the West is at odds with Muslims. On Thursday, Thomas de Mazier, the interior minister of Germany, said that ISIS militants might have planted the passport at, some of the, at the scene of the carnage at the state de France soccer stadium to implicate refugees and make people feel unsafe near them. There are indications that this was a planted lead, but it still can't be ruled out that this was indeed an ISIS terrorist posing as a refugee, he told reporters in Berlin on Tuesday. All right. Um, so then we'll be one more story, and that's about the media, and then I'm going into some other uh, stories more uh, national. And this comes from Vox. And uh, this was uh, written by Max Fisher. Did the media ignore the Beirut bombings or did the readers? And there's a lot of uh, discussion online. I try to sometimes stay offline because I can't deal with all the discussions that are happening, which are oftentimes just really inflammatory and uh, oftentimes untruthful. Uh, and then, of course, there's the folks who are speaking out saying, why are certain deaths uh why is more information given about some and more people concerned about some deaths than others? So this article goes into that. If social media is an expression of public sentiment, then it seems significant that perhaps the most widely shared tweet on Friday's terror attacks in Paris was not about Paris at all, but rather was about another terror attack earlier that week in Beirut. Um, and the photo in the tweet, which they show, is not in fact from last week's blast in Beirut. Rather, it is from 2006 during Israel's war against Hezbollah in Lebanon. But what is most striking to me about the t this tweet, now shared with well over 50,000 people, is that it's wrong. The media has in fact covered the Beirut bombings extensively. The New York Times covered it. The Washington Post, in addition to running an Associated Press story on it, sent reporter Hugh Naylor to cover the blasts and then write a lengthy piece on the aftermath. 
The Economist had a thoughtful piece reflecting on the attack's significance. CNN, which rightly or wrongly has a reputation for least common denominator news judgment, aired one segment after another on the Beirut bombings. Even the Daily Mail, a British tabloid most known for its gossipy royal coverage, was on the story and on and on. Yet these are stories that, like so many stories of previous bombings and mass acts of violence outside of the West, readers have largely ignored. It's difficult watching this as a journalist not to see the irony in people scolding the media for not covering Beirut by sharing a tweet with so many factual inaccuracies. People would know that photo was wrong if only they'd read some of the media coverage they are angrily insisting doesn't exist. Nobody is going to read this. Watching this debate unfold, my mind goes back to one of the first bombings I covered in early 2010. That April, a series of bombs ripped through Baghdad, killing 85 people. The city has not known what we might call total peace for some years, but it was a period of relative calm. The, bomb, the bombings, in addition to being a humanitarian disaster, also came at a tense political moment. It was a big, scary, and important event. Writing from the U.S. at that point as an editor of, at The Atlantic, I tried as best as I could to capture what made it so important. I was traveling that day, and I remember calling the web editor to discuss some revisions and urge him to position it at the top of the homepage. He readily agreed, but when I began discussing the headline and the photo with him, and I asked what he thought would best help get readers interested in the story, he laughed. It doesn't matter what art we put this. What we, it doesn't matter what art we put with this, or if it's at the top of the homepage. He said, "Nobody is going to read this." He was right. No matter how much we promoted the story, no matter how many times and ways we put it in front of the readers, they were not interested. I refused to believe that the editor had been right, and instead I blamed myself. My story must have been boring or poorly headlined, or the lead was too dry. Or maybe it was just that this was Baghdad, and readers had it in the preceding months not come to appreciate the city's brief calm. Another way I might have failed them. I still hold out hope that it's possible to get readers interested, and I have been trying over and over in the, in the five years since to get readers engaged with these stories. Incidents of mass violence in the world are, I believe, desperately important for readers to know, not just so that readers can offer sympathy to the victims, but so they can may better understand what's happening in the world and thus can better and more actively participate in whatever role they have to play as voters and global citizens. But unless the victims are either children or Christian, I have never really succeeded in getting readers to care about such bombings that happen outside of the Western world. More recent, most recently, we tried it with the June bombing in Kuwait and the August bombing in Bangkok. We covered the series of violent attacks this summer in Turkey. On Beirut alone, I wrote about the October 2012 bombing and the December 2013 bombing. And yes, my colleagues wrote about last week's bombing there. It's not just me, of course. My peers throughout the media have, have dutifully and diligently covered such attacks for years. Local reporters and foreign correspondents out in the field have, of course, done far more than I have, spending days interviewing victims and painstakingly reconstructing events, despite knowing that readers were all but certain to ignore the stories. Nobody is going to read this is a phrase we've grown to accustomed to hearing. I was thus a bit surprised over the past week to see an outpouring of reader outrage. So what's driving people to scold media outlets for not covering an event they have, in fact, covered extensively? At the most basic level, I suspect they may ref this may reflect a very human tendency with which we in the media are all too familiar. People start with a narrative they feel is true and then look for evidence to support that narrative. In this case, people began with a narrative that the world gives lesser weight to the suffering of non-Westerners, absolutely true, 
and then latched onto a piece of evidence, the supposed lack of media coverage that supported their narrative. The fact that the media has in fact covered Beirut and that the tweet capturing this outrage contained a photo from 2006 was in many ways besides the point. But facts do matter, and emphasizing wrong facts can lead us astray, not only because they lead us to blame the wrong villain. Uh, Jamil Slate, in an insightful series of tweets reflecting on all this, notices some concerning uh, trends in a lot of this discourse that might otherwise be well-intentioned. And Jamil Slate tweets, uh, I'm referring to the impulse to say, in effect, yes, Paris was bad, but why don't you get outraged about Beirut, Boko Haram, uh, Garissa, etc. This walks dangerously close to the hashtag All Lives Matter attempts to mute real and specific black suffering and grievance. People should be permitted to grieve and seek redress for specific violence and suffer without being redirected or corrected. And the self-congratulatory energy of much of this grievance and suffer redirection should be concerning. Some commentators today honestly sound like tragedy hipsters. Bro, I care about suffering and death that you've never even heard of. But I am still sympathetic to the anger. The underlying point behind the criticism is not really about the media after all. Rather, it's about a sense that the world at large has ignored Beirut's trauma and that it ignores similar traumas throughout the world if they occur in the wrong places, that it does not offer the same sympathy to victims outside of wealthy or Western countries. This is entirely correct. People in Beirut do feel forgotten. They do feel that the world has given Paris more sympathy and more attention than it has to them. We know this in part because the New York Times, as part of its running coverage of the Beirut blast, published an article reporting on these feelings of neglect in Beirut. There's more than just a supposed lack of media coverage at stake here, and the world's attention manifests itself in ways beyond just the frequency or attendance of sympathy rallies. The Syrian refugee crisis, for example, is something that has hit both France and Lebanon, yet the world's response, not just its words but its actions, has given significantly more weight to France's refugee burden than to Lebanon's. France has received 6,700 Syrian asylum claims and expects to receive several thousand more. In response, European and other Western leaders have convened repeated international summits to try to help France and other Western countries figure out how to deal with this. By comparison, Lebanon currently hosts 1.1 million Syrian refugees, equivalent to one quarter of the country's population. In response, the world has given some aid, but has fallen far short of the United Nations' annual funding requests. Lebanon is enduring not just a tremendous economic burden, but a political burden. The world truly does care more about France in this respect, and in many others, than about Lebanon, and that has consequences. It would be easy to blame the media for this, to say that if only media outlets covered Beirut rather than ignoring it, the world might pay attention. I have bad news. The media does cover Beirut, just as it has been, just as it has been covering Lebanon's refugee plight for years. That's an uncomfortable truth. Because rather than giving us an easy villain, it forces us to ask what our own role might be in the world's disproportionate care and concern for one country over another. But if that reflection leads people to express greater interest in what happens in Beirut or Abuja or Baghdad, then few will be happier than those of us in the media. We've been trying for years to break through reader apathy and disinterest. If we take some unfair criticisms, but it gets people to finally pay attention, I think that is a trade-off every reporter on earth would accept. Oh, 
So uh, I'm going to play one more song, and then we'll uh, get back with some more stories. And then we have a guest coming in, Dr. Beth. And keeping on with the theme, war, and all that comes with it. the clash of course with spanish bombs off the london calling album and the the journalist who we're speaking before is jared o uh, coleman and so getting into the next story this is deals more with uh, what's going on here in the states so this article comes from the guardian and the number of people killed by u.s police in 2015 is at what number everybody 
It's at 1,000. So 1,000 people have been killed by U.S. police in the year 2015. And the 1,000th person was here in Oakland, California. Uh, killing of man who allegedly pointed a replica firearm at officers in California is one thousandth, one thousandth, one thousandth, south, south, thousandth uh, entry in Guardian database tracking police killings this year. <sighs> okay, so this was written by uh, John Swain and Oliver uh, Lafland. Uh, the number of people killed by law enforcement in the U.S. this year has reached 1,000 after officers in Oakland, California, shot dead a man who allegedly pointed a replica gun at them. Authorities said several officers opened fire on the man on Sunday evening when he walked toward them as they lowered as they, they as they towed away cars that had been used to perform so-called sideshow stunts in East Oakland. Officers discovered later that the gun was a replica. Police said. Officers working sideshow approached by subject who pointed firearm in their direction, the Oakland Police Department said on Twitter. Officers fatally shot subject. A spokeswoman said the department would investigate the shooting itself. The man's name was not released. Hundreds of cars had been involved in hours of chaotic sideshow stunts that shut down several intersections in Oakland from late on Saturday into the early hours of Sunday, according to police. One man was arrested and several shots were fired. The man shot in Oakland became the 1,000th database entry in the Counted, an ongoing investigation by The Guardian to record every fatality caused by police and other law enforcement officers in 2015 to monitor the demographics of the people who died and detail how and why they were killed. Sunday's incident was the 883rd fatal shooting by a law enforcement officer so far in 2015, according to The Guardian records. Another 47 people died after being shocked with a with an officer's taser 33 died after being struck by a law enforcement officer's vehicle and 36 were killed in custody another received a deadly blow to the head during a fight with an officer the shooting was also the 183rd death recorded in california by far the greatest total of any state well congratulations california nine states however have recorded more deaths per capita with oklahoma having the highest rate the U.S. government publishes no comprehensive record of people killed by law enforcement, even after a series of controversial deaths unleashed a national protest movement and demands from activists and lawmakers alike for better data on the subject. An analysis of the statistics collected so far found the rate of deaths currently stands at 3.1 per day. This rate has remained relatively steady throughout the year, peaking through the month of March to a daily rate of almost four and dipping to an average of 2.6 through June. The Counted was launched on June 1st, logging 464 deaths in the year to that point. At that time, 102, or 22% of those killed, had been unarmed. This proportion has since fallen slightly to 20%, or 198 of the total 1,000. In 59 deaths, however, it remains unclear whether the suspect was armed. As of June 1st, black Americans were more than twice as likely to be unarmed as white Americans when killed by police. At that point, 32% of the 135 black people killed by police have been unarmed, compared with the 15% of the 234 white people. This disparity has since shrunk with 26% of the 248 black people and the 18% of the 490 white people being recorded as unarmed. 
Brittany Packnett, a member of, the, of Barack Obama's task force on 21st century policing and a founder of the Campaign Zero movement that lobbies to curb the levels of police violence in America, said the milestone should be met with sadness but not deep shock. Black folks like me have known for a long time that the police do not always represent safety for us and that an encounter could be deadly, says Packnett. But having these statistics that add to our personal stories should continue to move everyone towards wanting to having a part in correcting this. Obama's task force, convened after unrest in Ferguson, followed the decision not to prosecute the white officer who shot dead Michael Brown, an unarmed black 18-year-old, and made the collection of more reliable data on the number of police killings in the U.S. one of its central recommendations. FBI Director James Comey said earlier this year that it was ridiculous and embarrassing that The Guardian and a separate project by The Washington Post had better information than the federal government about deaths at the hands of law enforcement officers. The Department of Justice is, is uh, trailing a new program, which resembles The Counted, to proactively collect data on killings by police. Currently, the FBI records the number of justifiable homicides reported to the Bureau voluntarily by police departments that choose to participate. Packnett said that while the government was still in the beginning stages of instigating that process, campaigners realized it's not enough just to talk about police-involved shootings. We have to talk about in-custody deaths. We have to talk about non-lethal police violence. We need to talk about particularly vulnerable communities like children and the LGBTQ community, Packnett said. We have to track it all, and we have to track it knowing that stronger, more comprehensive data can better lead us to the place of building solutions. Oh, so again, that article comes from The Guardian. So... Yes, and that was at 1,000, uh, which is a lot of people, and that's here in the United States. All right, so come up and do one more story, and uh, then uh, playing some music, and then we'll be having our, our guests come in, and uh, our guest is Dr. Beth, who also has a show here at Mutiny Radio. Looking forward to talking to her, and of course, there's plenty more stories uh, that we can get to. Uh, we'll probably get to them either next week and if you want to take a look um they're on our facebook page facebook.com slash weekly rev uh there's a hate crime at harvard law school and there's also uh ireland has uh, passed same-sex marriage those are two stories that we're not going to get to today but if you'd like to read more about them check them out on the weekly review webpage. okay so this is um an article that um folks posted and this is about uh people wanting the uh a resolution supporting the abolition abolition of prisons. Okay, and I'm gonna just get some more information first before I go into this. And this was a link that uh, a friend of mine shared and thought it was really important to to get to this today. So of course we talk about abolition of prisons here, and again this is how everything is connected. And when you have law enforcement that's not treating people right uh, and then sending people to prison. Uh, if they didn't have prison to go to, that would make things uh, a hell of a lot better, certainly. And so, all right, just let's make a few more minutes here. So it's the National Lawyers Guild. So the no National Lawyers Guild has passed a resolution supporting the aboli abolition of prisons. And that's a pretty big deal. So it's the National Lawyers Guild. I'm going to read this. Uh, resolution supporting the abolition... Ab <laughs> What's up my, my voice today? Uh, supporting the abolition of prisons. 
We define the term prison to mean any institution where people are held against their will through coercion, force, or threat of force, including but not limited to prisons, jails, police lockups, juvenile detention facilities, immigration detention facilities, and hospitals or nursing homes where people are held against their will for civil commitment, psychiatric treatment, or quarantine. Whereas the United States has the world's largest prison population, with more than 2.2 million people are currently incarcerated in the United States, composing fully one quarter of all prisoners on Earth. One quarter. <laughs> one quarter of all prisoners on Earth are here in the United States. And in 2014, nearly 7 million people were under correctional control, the sorts of criminal legal system surveillance that include probation, parole, supervision, electronic monitoring, and other increasingly common forms of quote-unquote community monitoring, including that conducted by private companies contracting with governments. And whereas the United States spends an estimated $80 billion on incarceration per a year, more than six times what the U.S. spends on education. I'm going to repeat that. The U.S. spends an estimated $80 billion on incarceration per year, more than six times what the U.S. spends on education. States spend an average of three to six times more incarcerating an adult than they spend educating a young person. Fewer than 20% of incarcerated people have a high school diploma. Money dedicated to funding incarceration is money that could be spent on prevention and support of opportunities for those currently trapped in the criminal legal system. And, whereas prisons are used to criminalize and repress dissent and movements for liberation, many NLG members have been or currently are in prison for the expression of their political beliefs. The Guild has long supported many political prisoners, such as Puerto Rican independence fighters, see Puerto Rico Resolutions 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, and 2014, the Cuban Five, see Cuban Five Resolutions 2007, 2014, Palestinian prisoners, see Resolutions to Support Palestinian Prisoners 2007, 2011, Black Panther Party and Black Liberation Army Veterans, Leonard Peltier of the American Indian Movement, and current NLG jailhouse lawyer Vice President Mumia Abu-Jamal, establishment of the NLG Political Prisoner Support Committee was approved in August 2015. And, whereas... Prisons further racism and classism, and people of color make up approximately 70% of prisoners, despite composing only 22% of the national population. Black women are the fastest growing group of prisoners, and Native American prisoners are the largest group per capita. Prisons... Uh, prisoners are often subject to non-consensual eugenics practices and other medical experimentation. Prisons punish poverty and crimes of survival, making individuals suffer for social conditions such as poverty, homelessness, and lack of access to mental health care and other resources. The pro proliferation of quality-of-life offenses associated with existence in public spaces disproportionately criminalizes homeless, precariously housed, and low-income people and transgender people of color. And and whereas prisons hurt workers, those who have been imprisoned are by law exempt from the constitutional prohibition on human slavery. Incarcerated members of our community are forced to work without pay and without the option to quit. Prisoners create many of the country's most profitable consumer goods and do some of the most dangerous and physically 
demanding labor, including fighting wildfires in California and being forced to do agricultural work on plantations in Louisiana. Incarceration is used to disrupt labor organizing and intimidate workers. Companies use prison labor in, a, in order to avoid complying with labor and employment laws. Construction of new prisons has been used to distract from the impact of post-industrialization in impoverished rural places. Prison guard unions receive special treatment by the state to the detriment of other workers and building a mass workers movement. And whereas prisons are designed to maintain economic and racial inequality, legitimize capitalism and feed corporate wealth, prisons are the state's primary tool for punishing the very people targeted by inequally developed and actively maintained by state and federal policy. Blaming individuals for the conditions inflicted upon them by social policy denies appropriate social responsibility and enables both policy and popular rhetoric falsely claiming the existence of equal opportunity for success in the United States. Prisons exploit inequality for profit and transfer resources from public use to private entities, including generating hundreds of millions of dollars per year to just two of the largest private prison companies. And whereas prisons further ableism, people living with disabilities are more likely to be incarcerated than people without disabilities. And incarceration creates additional disabilities. People with disabilities are further punished while in prison and receive inadequate treatment. State prisoners report mental health conditions at five times the rate of the general adult population, 56.2% versus 11% across the country, and 40% of individuals with a severe mental illness will spend time in jail, prison, or community corrections at some point. Currently, 32 states and two territories explicitly criminalize even unintentional HIV exposure, perpetuating the stigma that people living with HIV are toxic and dangerous. And whereas prisons further sexism, transphobia, and homophobia, and women and LGBTQ GNC people face unique forms of criminalization, are imprisoned disproportionately and face undue harm once incarcerated. Nearly 50% of black transgender respondents reported some incarceration. Women facing criminalization and other punishment for drinking or using drugs while pregnant and for defending themselves against abusive partners. Transgender women of color forced to fight back against transphobic violence are routinely punished in lieu of their attackers. Women prisoners have experienced forced sterilization. Prisons prohibit even consensual relationships between prisoners, using denial of sexuality as an additional element of punishment, while permitting high rates of non-consensual sexual violence. Transgender people in particular face extraordinary high rates of violence while incarcerated, punishment for refusal to comply with gender norms, and denial of gender-affirming health care. And, whereas prisons further ageism and criminalize normal youthful behavior, the school-to-prison pipeline includes zero-tolerance discipline policies, harsh suspensions and expulsions, and court involvement that pushes young people, especially youth of color and youth with disabilities, out of the classrooms and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems. This pipeline reflects the prioritization of incarceration over education, decreases long-term access to employment, and increases the likelihood of later criminal legal system involvement. And whereas prisons further marginalization of those with non-Christian religions, anti-terrorism, in quotes, legalization has been used to unfairly target, survey, 
Surveil, criminalize and imprison non-Christians and particularly Muslims. Many Muslim prisoners are subjected to solitary confinement for extended periods without explanation or justification. The operation of the Guantanamo Bay facility is in violation of international criminal law and has been the site of an, the extended imprisonment and cruel torture of non-Christian prisoners of the state. Non-Christian defendants are less likely to receive fair trials, civilian jurisdiction, or shorter sentences than their Christian counterparts. <coughs> and uh, <clears throat> and whereas uh, prisons have not stopped violence such as rape, war, child abuse, intimate partner abuse, murder, bombings, torture, and other atrocities. In fact, prisons sometimes worsen such violence by further traumatizing prisoners, disrupting their relationships with families and communities, and decreasing prisoners' ability to function socially. Prisons do not support survivors or their agency and instead legitimize state violence in the name of victims and survivors. Prisons do not make the individual or societal changes necessary for accountability and prevention of further violence. Prisons detract from grassroots anti-violence strategies such as community accountability processes, restorative and transformative justice practices, and other survivor-centered efforts. And... Whereas prisons actually cause violence, whether through solitary confinement, strip searches, overcrowding, denial of needed health care, beatings, rape, humiliation, or other tactics, prisons routinely use violence to control and dominate prisoners. Prisons are the sites of countless daily human rights violations. The total state control and violence against human beings in prison violates all standards of human decency and, in many cases, international law. Violence in prisons does not equally, is not equally distributed and disproportionately affects youth, LGBTQ GNC prisoners, and those with mental illness. Transgender prisoners, for example, are sexually abused at nearly 10 times the rate of prisoners in general, 39% versus 4%. And, whereas prison abolition is a strongly developed by radical cis and trans black women, current and former prisoners, and trans and queer people of color, abolition is a demand of Ferguson Action and many other organizations, for example, Critical Resistance, Incite, Women of Color Against Violence, Black and Pink, Justice Now, The Audre Lorde Project, The, Sil the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, Philly Stands Up, Transformative Justice Law Project of Illinois, Communities United Against Violence, Transgender Gender Variant Intersex Justice Project and California Coalition for Women Prisoners have all supported prison abolition and use prison abolitionist strategies in their work. Therefore, be it resolved that the National Lawyers Guild at its 2015 Law for the People Convention calls for the dismantling and abolition of all prisons and of all aspects of systems and institutions that support, condone, create, fill, or protect prisons. The NLG commits itself to supporting grassroots organizing efforts, policy initiatives, and litigation that promotes or moves towards abolition, including the rights and organizing of prisoners, the defunding of closure of prisons, and the redirection of prison and policing budgets into social and human services, <coughs> as well as reentry support, legalization of drug use and sex work, release of prisoners serving life without parole and other inhumane sentences, decreased use of solitary confinement, and efforts to prevent construction of new prisons. Implementation. This resolution is to be implemented by the committee and individuals listed in support below and in coordination with the NLG National Office. The individuals listed below will contact and coordinate with committees, chapters, and other NLG entities to assist them in educating their members and the public about this issue.
the national office was consulted and has agreed to assist in implementation. Individuals active in the supporting committees agreed to assist in implementation within their committees and beyond. And this was submitted by the Anti-Racism Committee of the National Lawyers Guild, the Mass Incarceration Committee of the National Lawyers Guild, uh, Pooja Gehi, Executive Director of the National Lawyers Guild, Oren Nimni, Co-Chair of the Na United People of Color Caucus of the National Lawyers Guild, uh, Bina Ahmad, Co-National Vice President of the National Lawyers Guild, Sher Sherilyn Grace, Co-National Vice President of the National Lawyers Guild, Hannah Adams, Co-Chair, Anti-Racism Anti Committee of the NLG, uh, K.T. Crossman, co-chair of the Queer Caucus of the NLG, Sarah Kirshner, member of the NLG Bay Area Police and Prisons Committee, Caitlin Kelly-Henry, member of the NLG Bay Area Police and Prisons Committee, Nora Carroll, co-founder of the Mass Incarceration Committee of the NLG, Jesse Stout, co-chair Drug Policy Committee of the NLG, Miriam Haskell, Southern Regional Vice President of the NLG, Kelly Lou Densmore, Co-Far West Regional VP of the NLG, Heidi Ann Kronecka, member of Loyola University Chicago School of Law, NLG chapter, Maggie Ellinger Luck, a member of member at large, National Lawyers Guild. So there you have it. That says it all right there. I'm gonna play some music and we'll be back with our guest shortly. Ask me, 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 
right, and welcome back. We are here with our guest, Dr. Beth Albert, who also hosts a show here called Ask Dr. Beth here at Mutiny Radio. Welcome. Thank you. So great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks so much for coming in. So if you'd like to just start talking a little bit about the, the work that you do with, with teens. So I am a passionate advocate for teenagers and parents of teenagers because I feel like they have, they're getting a bad rap in the world right now. When I get a group of, say, 50 to 500 people in a room and I say, tell me what you think about a teenager, yeah. everybody just starts saying all the negative stuff. They're drug addicts, they're losers, they're lazy, they're no good. I mean, everything that you could possibly not want to live into. Right. And my belief is actually their energy, when fully expressed and, and embraced, actually turns into the next world leadership. Yes. Well, of course, they're the, they're the next generation. So right on. we have to support them and, and lift them up. That would be my. That would be the ideal, right? Yes, yes, it would be. I think they scare the uh, current establishment because they don't understand, they don't appreciate, and they don't think they respect them. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, they don't, um, because it. You have to give respect in order to earn respect. Sure. And many of the uh, um, establishment think that the younger kids owe them respect. Right, right. Well, can we talk a little bit about just um, like kids' upbringing and reasons why kids might not necessarily respect or show respect if they're coming from a hurt place, for example, or if their home life yes. isn't safe? I would imagine that definitely would contribute to m- what would be deemed misbehavior in some adults' eyes. Yes. And also, if I can't win as a child, if there's no way to show up, uh, the expectations of the Um, adult world are so high and so strict that there's no way I can possibly win, then it's easier just to give up and choose to give up. Right. And the other thing is, if I'm looking at you as a parent and your tongue is hanging out and you're exhausted and you're overwhelmed and you've been on the treadmill of life and you are beat down, the children are looking at the adults and they're saying, you guys are not making that look like so much fun. Yes. I think I'll take a different path. Thank of you course. very much. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I also wonder how much of it is, you know, adults see themselves in the teenagers and that's kind of like the way that they were. And in a way that's, we all kind of see ourselves in one another. Yes. Or yeah. are yes. the way we were or are. I actually talk about the inner teenager and, um, many times, the concept of the inner teenager doesn't come out until you have a teen. Yes. And and then it's like the adult parent has left the building and you have two teenagers going absolutely mad and crazy with each other. That teen against teen. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Certainly. Um, so what inspired you to get involved with teenagers in the first place? I absolutely love all ages. I've worked in my... Um, past corporate work and my past clinical work of every age and every stage, all the way from um, pre, my doctorate uh, dissertation was on zero to three. Mm. And I put together a program to help uh, parents before the baby was born. And so I was about trying to make a difference and make things work. And after about, I don't know how many years, 
I had so many people that kept coming to me saying, when you put something together for teenagers, you let me know. When you put something together for teenagers, you let me know. And finally, what I realized is I, if I work with the teens, I'm actually getting them before they get pregnant. Yes. So yeah. I love teen energy. I love two-year-old energy. I love senior energy. But it seems like the heartburn of uh, America, the heartburn of society is this adolescent time of life. Yes. Yeah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense, certainly, especially when you know people start realizing who they are, start questioning who they are, and then you have society's rules, and even you know schools can be institutions, certainly. Yes. And where do people go, you know, especially if they don't feel safe at home, or they don't feel safe at school, then where do, and if, as, a, as a minor, you don't have a lot of options as to where you go or who you can be, or yeah. safe places to go. They really do. They many many of the kids these days feel so lost. I was talking with a a young man this week, and he said, um, and he was he said, I'm not going to school. Actually, I've had three teenagers this week say, I'm not going back to school. That's yeah. it. I'm done. You can't make me. I'm not going to school. By the way, I'm glad to announce that they're all three back in school. However, the scream for help was, I'm one out. This society and this system and this structure is not serving me and it's not working. So much pain. So much pain. Thank goodness they screamed instead of took their lives. Yes. But imagine, yeah, suicidal ideations is is huge, I'd imagine, like among... And right among youth and then also not having resources or not knowing about resources and then feeling like is this ever going to change are things ever going to get better yes and they're so afraid to speak their truth because they don't want to hurt their parents yes they don't want to hurt adults and they don't want to be hurt so sometimes they would opt to take their own lives over speaking the truth mm-hmm. or sometimes they get on their electronics or they hide out in their room but my my personal bias is if they're screaming, I can at least know what's going on. Yes. It's when they turn off, when they disconnect, when they stop talking, that's when I get scared. Yes. Yeah. I I, I mean, I imagine that like on some level, like th- I was in high school in the 90s and like since then, like the internet has become a lot more ubiquitous certainly and I can see it being as a tool for children to connect with one another then I can also see it as a screen for for children to hide behind in a way where you're not getting that the face-to-face contact and you're it's not quite the same absolutely absolutely it I find that the resources available to children today is I mean the sky's the limit. They can actually tap into anything and everything that they can imagine to ask Jeeves or Google or uh, ask Sirius. I mean, all they've got to do is ask the question and they're instantly connected to the answer, which is exciting. And I think also a little overwhelming. Yes. Yeah. Or an answer, because of course there's not much of a filter. Exactly. The the information, a lot of it's misinformation, certainly, which I could see could cause a lot more problems too, depending on what people are accessing. Absolutely. Some of the, some of the things that the children have told me are facts are beyond scary, beyond scary. And, and their, their source is of course the internet. Yes. Or their friends who got their information from the internet. So one of the things that I am such a believer in is no matter what, keep the relationship connected. Yes. So I would rather have a kid cuss me out. I'd rather have a child um, tell me they hate me. I would rather have a child tell me, you know, I want you to be dead. 
Use your words. Use your words. Say anything and everything you'd ever want to say. Just keep talking to me so that I know where you are. And, and it's then that we still have influence with our children. But I think so many parents are so afraid of the words yes. that they shut down their children because they're afraid they're going to be hurt if they use those words out in public. Yes. But what I've actually found is that if they'll use the words at home, they don't use the words out in public. Right. And you can even have special situations at home where you say, all right, right now, anything goes. For the next 10 minutes, say anything you ever wanted to say to me, and I will just hold space. Here's the talking stick. Mm. Go. Oh, I could see that being very, very helpful for for a lot of people. And I feel like our culture also just is in a way almost encourages people to not talk about how they're feeling, especially with like emotions. I think in terms of like with raising like men in this culture too, like there's even more of a, for men not to show like perceived weakness or perceived, you know, sadness or hurt. And I feel like that just causes even more pain. Yes. Yes. Speaking of uh, men and not showing their feelings, have you heard about the mask we wear? No. Oh, it's a fantastic uh, film, and it, it talks about how boys and men are um, grown to wear a mask, yes. and it's not okay. And then there's another film that goes hand in hand with that, and it's called Miss Misrepresentation, mm-hmm. and it's about young girls and how they are. Um, we see the media where models are. Uh, what is that called? Shopped, photoshopped down to a size zero or negative two. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And we have such misinformation and masks that the boys are wearing. And I think that's one of the things that's showing up, you know, I'm watching or reading Facebook and, and watching the news and hearing all the pain that's in the world. And then hearing the children that are saying, I quit, I'm not going to school, I'm not doing it, you can't make me. You know, we are at a point where the way we have done it is not working. If you always do what you've always done, you're going to always get what you've always got. And I think we're getting more of that on steroids. Yes. Sometimes really. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think about my own, like I'm, I'm transgender and I was, you know, so I was like red as female growing up. And even then I've always been very emotional and very sensitive, certainly. Yes. And even then there seems to be this like discomfort with, with, with showing emotion, with showing, with crying in public. Mm -hmm. And so I can only imagine what it, what it is like for, for young boys who, who do cry or do show any traits that would be viewed as feminine in a way. Like I know there's a ton of bullying certainly and right. also goes into like gender policing, which it's not just, it's not just damaging for transgender folks. It's damaging for everyone. This idea that you have to be a certain way based on your perceived body. Absolutely. And how you are perceived um, as a male and how you're perceived as a female and how you're perceived as a race and yeah. all these and size labels and, and, and um, painful, painful things that we do to each other. It, it, it's, um, it's really sad yeah. and it does, it comes out sideways. One of the ways that that um, really is portrayed is with a parent and a child. So if you have a male father Whatever the the wife says about the father, she might as well be saying it directly to the son. Mm-hmm. Same thing for a daughter with a mother. Anything that the husband is saying to the the mother about her, she might as well be saying it directly to the child. 
and then I can, I would, I'm fascinated with what you have internalized as you've gone through your journey. Sure. Uh, is it okay to cry? And have you interpreted that? Yeah. I mean, now that I'm adult and I, I mean, I see it more as a societal thing. And right. Like, and thankfully like, uh, the household I grew up in was like very egalitarian. So I'm very grateful to have grown up in a, in a household where my parents respected each other and was like very equal. Um, however, that doesn't, change the fact that there's still the media influence, the school influence, the going out into the world influence, and so many other influences telling us that we're somehow wrong for being who we are in a way that Absolutely. we need to correct our behavior. And then one begins to internalize it and think, okay, what's wrong with me? As opposed to maybe I'm just upset because the whole world is really corrupt and frustrating and people are mean and people are hurt. And, and, yes. and so I think a lot of, and then as a teenager, like now as an adult, I feel like I have resources and a more of an understanding of the complexities of the world and I'm able to maybe reach out more and to talk about it more. And I would imagine as a teenager, there's just less of an idea of how to talk about it, how to reach out, and even a, an understanding that that they are not, that they are they are okay as they are, but I think they're yes. fed a lot of messages that they're not okay, which yes. might seem really like uh, hopeless. Yeah, and I think I think <clears throat> part of the pain is that when you are in your teen years, you're so f um, malleable. Mm -hmm. You are so malleable. They play like they're not, and they pretend to know it all, but they are sponge. They are sponging up everything that is being said to, about, around, and they're trying to make sense of all of it. And when we have a belief about a child that they are fill-in-the-blank – they get to be right. That parent gets to be right. So if you say your child is a loser, mm -hmm. even if they try to defy you, they unconsciously yes. shoot themselves in the foot and become what you tell them they are. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, oh. And so I, yeah. I talk with the children and I say, are you ready to take your power back? Mm -hmm. Are you ready to take your power back? And I say to the parent, do you really want your child to believe that? Is that what you really want your child to live into? What you just said, you know, you're lazy, you're no good son of a gun, you're a loser, you're a drug addict, you're a, uh, you're gonna, you're gonna, you know, turn out to be nothingness. Whatever it is that they are fearing and they're trying yeah. to protect their child from, yeah. it actually becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. Yes, that's, yeah, that's the word I was looking for before. Self fulfilling prophecy, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and I also wonder how much of it is parents repeating what was done to them. I, I think either maybe just repeating this the same way that they were raised or maybe even going the opposite direction. And it's tr I, I don't have children of my own, so I can't. But I just imagine what a challenge it must be that even the best meaning, most well-meaning parents still you can't help but sometimes repeat what was done to you in some unconscious way. Yeah, it, it even shows up in relationships. Like you're in a relationship – and you drop that person and you say, I'm never going to be in that relationship again. And then the next person comes along and bada boom, bada bang, you've just married the same, you know, <laughs> yes. you just married the same person. Yeah. And so, you know, after three or four or five of these rounds, there is one common denominator and that's you, you know, whoever is either picking the person, training the person, living the person into that. And if each and every one of us can take that self-responsibility in Every relationship, not just with our children, not just with our spouses, but in every relationship. Because if I, I one of my favorite stories is about my nephew, and um, he is one tough little cookie, tough, tough, tough little man. And when he, when I took him snow skiing, he came back 
from uh, the snow class, snow skiing class. the class and he said um everybody keeps pushing me down i hate ski school they always push me down and i said wow i said you know i've been in ski school for 20 30 years i've never been pushed down in ski school isn't that crazy how you always get pushed down i've never been pushed down i wonder why he said maybe because i pushed them down first oh (laughs) did not see that coming (laughs) yes and the little ones they bust themselves all the time they totally bust themselves so what you expect you know if you expect people to treat you like jerks you come in and you hit them first and i'll be they treat you like a jerk yeah I wonder, um, in terms of like nonviolence, how to, because I feel like our culture, like in the media especially, like not not to blame, because like the the world, there's violence has been going on for since before any video games were invented. Clearly, yes. however, I do feel like as video games and movies, there is like such a, a healthy proportion of violence that's accessible, where like as opposed to like sex, for instance, which is somehow deemed inappropriate, yet violence is somehow appropriate. I wonder how much of that is just kind of kids just seeing that as as accepted and then uh, enacting it in a way. Well, you know, I have seen many, many children that have um, been a witness to incredible acts of violence that did not become violent. Yes. And children that have seen incredible acts of violence that did become violent. Yes. So it's a little bit like... um, and I don't know what the the actual percentages are, but let's say 80% or 90% of who and what we become is based on our genetics. It's based on um, what is within. Mm -hmm. But the other 10% or 5% or whatever small percentage it is turns on the whole other 80 or 90%. I see. So maybe um, I have the gene for cancer, but if I never have the um, the environment that turns that gene on, yes. then that gene remains dormant. Same thing with violence. Maybe I have been raised seeing it, playing it, yeah. knowing it. And if I have an outlet to understand it, yes. then it's not going to be acted out. If I don't have an outlet to understand it or have a way to express it or I'm not... Uh, or, or maybe I'm going through so much violence myself yes. of, of what's being done to me, then that's the tool that's in my toolbox because I've learned it. Yes. yes. But if I have a hundred other tools in my toolbox and I've seen the violence, then I can pick a bunch of other tools. Right, right. So it's not the violence in and of itself that deems violence. Just because I see it doesn't mean I have no brain power to not choose it. Yes, yes. And... Um, Again, for me, it comes back to having a place where I can express it, feel those feelings, name it out, Mm -hmm. name it out so you don't act out. Yes. How great would that be if there was – I think that also goes into the idea of like with um, adequate and accessible mental health care for everyone, especially for youth, to be able to talk about what's going on. Yes, yes. And not only accessible, um, but safe to say anything and everything. And I think there's a – there's a stigma in the school system that you're supposed to look like the status quo. Uh-huh. Boys are supposed to look like boys. Yeah. Girls are supposed to look like girls. Um, you know, uh, 
I don't I don't know all the different crazy stigmas. You're yes. supposed to get this X grade. Yes. Um, you know, what whatever those whatever those I don't even want to you know throw all those those stereotypes out there, but for the children like yourself, like myself, that didn't fit the status quo, we either have to sell ourselves out mm-hmm. and pretend that we are the status quo, which sells out our own souls, right. or we stand out like a sore thumb, and then we have to take the abuse that comes from standing out Yes, when we yeah. don't have the tools to handle it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And that kind of goes into the idea of like schools in a way as, as institutions where I know we, we mentioned before briefly about like the, the school to prison pipeline. And I think some people do view, view schools as a way of just you have to you have a certain number. You have to like be kind of you're put in a box in a way. And I'm wondering what can be done to kind of prevent that and to allow students to be more of who they are within schools. Yes, I was. I'm watching a uh, video that a friend sent me, and it's about a school where everyone within the school, all the children, make their own rules. Okay. I've got a. Uh, I could uh, look it up when we take a break, and I can tell you the. Sure. I can find it and tell you the name of it, but it's it is fascinating, and I totally believe it. That when you can get to the higher self of every child, when when I'm working with a, a child even as young as three, when when they can start to talk, three, four, five, eight. 12 and I'll say and they'll be in some dilemma and I'll say how old is your wise self and usually they say 19 21 22 you know some relatively young age and I'll say okay so let's take that 22 year old what would she say about you fill in the blank not you know smoking quitting school and th- and then they'll say no wait 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 she's probably 30 or he's probably 30 you know then really old right 30 30 yeah. and i'll say okay what is this 30 year old what wisdom would this 30 year old give you and every time it would be something that my higher self would would say like as a you know a doctorate of psychology um you know in my 50s the wisdom that i have I have never had a child, not once, that has said something that, that was just completely, um, when, I, when I got them to tap and really answer from their wise self. You know, sometimes they'll, they'll laugh and say, yeah, I, I think I should quit and go to the Bahamas. And we laugh together. And they laugh. Yeah. But when I say, okay, so then after you get back from the Bahamas, then what? And they're like, I know, I've got to go back to school. Or I know I need to do my homework, or I know I need to brush my teeth, or I know fill in the blank, whatever it is that, quote, the wisdom might be, that child has access to that. Like, for example, I'll, t- I'll tell you one, um, let's say a 16-year-old that's smoking pot, uh-huh. and I'll say, do you think this is good for you? Yeah. And they'll say, yeah, absolutely. It's helping me, you know, it's chilling me out, it's this, that, and the other, and they'll have a whole explanation for it. And I'll say, so what about your six-year-old brother? Mm-hmm. Do you think we should go ahead and let him have it too? Yeah. And he'll say, absolutely not. Right. And I'll say, why not? Why? Why Why six is too young? Sixteen's okay, but six is too young. Why is that? And they will help walk themselves right out of the story. Mm-hmm. I see. So it's, it's fascinating when we allow each and every one of us to have our own inner divine knowingness Mm -hmm. in, and I was uh, with a couple of 
principals and counselors and students this week in, in high schools. And these are the, the children that are out on the edges that are not, you know, going through the moo, wherever you want me to go, you know. Yes, yes. Going through the stalls <laughs> exactly where they're supposed to go, jumping through the hoops and keeping quiet and turning in their homework and, you know, fill in the blank. These are the children that are the outliers. And I ask them, what do you think is best for you? Mm-hmm. Where do you think you're going to get the education? You obviously want an education. Yes, yes. You, you, you want to be the greatest, grandest version of yourself? Yes, yes. You want to, you know, have a life and have a job and be successful? Absolutely. Yes, yes. All right. So what method do you think at whatever age, two, three, five, you know, I'm talking young, young ages that I ask this question because I, as I ask this question, they then tap into their own inner knowingness mm-hmm. and then I can help set up the structures to help them get there. And if they say something like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to shoot myself in the head, then I just keep asking questions Yes. until it's a question, a- until it's an answer that resonates also with my truth I see. for them. I see. So how about like students who don't feel comfortable, who don't want to be in school at all or don't want to have any kind of education then, you know, for maybe like students who are very, like very artsy, for instance. And yes. So what would be recommended for folks who don't necessarily want to participate in like a high school environment or don't feel safe there yet still, they still want to learn, they still want to create, they still want to take place in the world. What, what alternatives are there for, for them? I'm taking a hint. I mean, I'm taking a guess that this might be where you were. I actually was actually really like I went to school every day. I like cut class maybe like once in my entire four years. But yes. looking back, I didn't smoke pot at all. I didn't it might have relaxed me. I, I know I, I recognize like it's not good for folks after a cer- you know under a certain age yes. to do it. Um, I didn't rebel very much at all. I feel like I didn't rebel very much at all in high school. I just know from people I've met, for instance. But would you have been one of those children that had somebody asked? Did you fit in that system? Or did you tolerate that system? I tolerated the system. Okay. I tolerated the system. So I was working with a child today who is brilliant. Mm -hmm. He is brilliant. And he's absolutely tolerating the system. Yes. He's dying on the inside. Yes. And he might be able to get through to the end of the year. But why? Why just tolerate life in the greatest time of your life when you have so much energy and so much excitement and aliveness? Why just tolerate Yes. Why have one track for every single child? Yes, yes. So there's some incredible schools, mm-hmm. incredible schools, uh, art schools, uh, technology schools, mm-hmm. handcraft schools. Um, and so what I would what I would do with every single child, yes. if I could, uh, you know, be the uh, the boss of the world, yeah. would be to help every child design their own education. Oh yeah. Help every child decide. You know, at the end of this at the end of this term, what do you want to accomplish? Mm -hmm. What do you want to know? What do you want to learn? Now, here's the norm. This is what most kids will know. This is what's going to, you know, this track will get you into the sciences. This track will get you into the arts. This track will get you into construction. Yes. So which one of these, um, these things would you like to try? Not I'm going to pigeon pigeonhole myself for the rest of my life. How many careers have you had? In your young, your lo- young life. Too many life. to count. Too many yeah. to count, yeah. Myself as well. Yeah. And every single one of them have been fantastic. 
and I would shoot me in the head if I had to just pick one career at age, you know, fill in the blank, 12, oh, 21, yes. yeah. 30, that that was going to be what I had to do forever. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Couldn't stand it. So we have these rigid beliefs that it's supposed to look you know, a specific way. And if we're quote, doing it right, then we'll all look the same way. Yes. I believe if we're all in joy, then we're doing it right. Oh yeah. If we're in misery, then somebody needs to ask a question. How can we turn this up? How can we uplift your life? What can we do in a different way? Yes. I, I appreciate that. Um, I've a couple more, we're already at one thirty, but a couple more questions. Sure. One would be just more of like a, a, a broader sense on the show. Uh, talk about the news and a lot of it's, there's a lot of systemic oppression. So, um, even with, with students like offering them the, the chance to talk about what's going on in their lives, I think is really important. And then also offering other like schools if they're, if they're not able to access other schools though, or if they're not able to talk about their feelings um, what other options are there for, I guess, for kids who don't have those, those options, I would say. Well, are we talking more to the children right now? Or are we talking to the adults? Um, Cause if we're talking to the adults, I say, we've got to get the options in the hands of the children. Yes. Yeah. If I'm talking to the children, I would say, start challenging and asking questions of the adults. Mm -hmm. If you're miserable, if you're living in hell, yeah. if you're trapped and you feel like you're, um, you know, you're just trying to make it through the day, you have a right. Yes. You have a right to question. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So how do we help? Yeah, I guess, I mean, we talked a little bit about this, but just more like in terms of empowering children to help them, you know, empower themselves in a society that doesn't really want to give them any power and doesn't find, even give a lot of adults power. Find adults mm -hmm. that love your questions. Yeah. Find coaches yeah. that love your energy. Mm -hmm. Find teachers that are willing to let you be authentic and real. Yes. Find churches. Find uh, mentors. Find older kids mm -hmm. that are living into what you want to live into. Yes. Um, and again, I, I would really say it's up to the adults. Yeah. We need to have more and more systems and more and more s schools and more and more strategies to yes. see yeah. the children when they are screaming for help, but they can't scream. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, the, and one of the ways they scream is depression. Mm -hmm. Another way they scream is to go to sleep. Another oh, yeah. way, another way they scream is to go into their electronics and, and they figure you can't handle the truth. So I'm going to go into this alternative universe. Yes. Um, another way they scream is to stuff and eat their feelings. Another way they scream yeah. is to, um, uh, get with, with kids and children that they feel like they can be authentic with no matter what. Right, right. Even though it's destructive, they'd rather be with someone. Some that, sense of belonging in a way. Yes, yes. Yeah. So in, in the teen years, their number one goal is to find themselves. And if what we're doing is telling them what to think, when to think, how to think, where to think. Oof. That's not going to help. They make things worse. They are going to rebel. Yes. Or feel like yes. they're dying in their own skin. Yes. And sometimes literally. Yes. Yes. Well, if you'd like to take a few moments just to discuss your book a little bit. Sure. For so, who may be interested. So I wrote the book, Embracing Defiance, Helping Your Child 
express their unique voice while you keep your sanity. Mm, very important. And so one of the things that happens in the book is I, I talk about an inner family. Have you ever heard of like the inner child? Mm-hmm. So I take the inner child theory and I expand upon that. So the inner child in my worldview would be the inner three-year-old. And in my own inner world, it's little B. So my, my little inner three-year-old is little B. And little B wants safety. Yes. She wants to be able to feel her feelings. She wants to be able to uh, express and, you know, be a be a little entertainer and just be a show off and, and be present in the world with all of her rawness. Then another character comes along that I call super B. Yes. And this is the inner seven year old that is mortified that little B is a little show off and is mortified that little B is going to just embarrass the daylights out of us. And so the seven year old in all of us tries to control us, put structures in place um, get us to be perfectionistic, workaholic, um, do be a good girl, do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so I would say about 85% of the world is well-versed, i.e. stuck in inner seven-year-old. Yes. And that's where the, the, um, structures and the consistency and everybody, you know, does the right thing. And 99% of the people would all agree. This is what you do. And this is the seven-year-old. That's the rules. You follow the rules. Then comes along a character that I call the inner teenager. Yeah. And the inner teenager looks like a defiant, rebellious, destructive, horrible part of ourselves. But what it really is doing is saving us from boredom, saving us from the status quo, saving us from our seven-year-olds. Yes. And saving us from uh, dying. Yes. Literally saving us from having no passion and no no purpose and no life and no authentic voice and being a little minion. (laughs) So the goal in my book is to help people understand that we have to integrate all these parts of ourselves. Yes. It's not yes or no. It's not black or white. It's not all or none. It's yes and. Yes. It's the improv uh, philosophy is yes and. Yes. Well. Yeah. I love it. I love yeah. improv. So there's a, another character that is called the divine wise self, mm-hmm. the ideal parent, the uh, your God self, whatever you want to call it. And this is the part that would be like the moderator of these inner children. So instead of having your seven-year-old drive the bus all the time and everybody else just grabs the wheel periodically and pulls you off the road or, you know, hides under the covers or moves into depression or whatever the other characters do. What we need is someone that gets everyone to have a voice. That's what we need to do internally. That's what we need to do in our families. And that's what we need to do in life. That sounds great. So how do we listen, listen, listen Oh, sorry, your mic uh, went out. Do you want to hop over to... Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah, there we go. Okay. And, and so what I was just saying is, so what we want to do is listen, 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 both in our inner world with the family and also with uh, the whole society. Whoever you're coming up against, if you're in complete disagreement, that's when you really want to understand yes. what in the world would make somebody think that. Yes. Who oh, yeah. am I being that is creating that? Yes. Follow that one? Who am I being in this world that's actually creating you to have to show up that way? Mm. 
So if you're screaming at the top of your lungs, there's something that I'm doing that's not making you feel safe that you can just talk to me in a normal tone of voice. Yes. Yeah. I think about how that just could can manifest like all everywhere, everywhere in like the the state of the world and how we're all kind of responsible for everything that's going on in a way. And yeah, we all, everything, every action has a reaction. Yeah. Instead of saying they have rage and they are bad, we have rage. Yes. Every one of us has rage. Oh yeah. We have uh, misrepresentation. We have horrible decisions. We have, and we are in a dilemma. So anytime you want this, this is really great when it comes to relationship with, with a spouse or a partner, when you can say, we both want to be on time and we both want to chill out. Yeah. We both want to make a bunch of money and we both want to spend a bunch of money. We both want all of it, but what we end up doing most of the times is we polarize people. Yes. I take a pole, I take oh, one yeah. pole, and I stick it in the ground, and then that means there's only one pole left. So you have to stick the pole in the ground over there so that both both sides get heard. Yes. But the reality is, we both want everything. We all want all of it. We all want freedom. Yeah. And we all want safety. Yes. Yes. Whew. Well. It's a, a great place to, to end, certainly. We all want freedom and we all want safety. Yes. Absolutely. And if anybody wants to uh, get a copy oh, yes. of my book, mm-hmm. you can go to drbeth.com mm-hmm. and uh, fill in the information on my Facebook, I mean, uh, on my page. And I have a whole bunch of free downloads and reports and uh, audios and a lot of, lot of resources that you can uh, understand and, and get a bunch of these concepts Wonderful. and I, I base it on the 10 keys to compassion the 10 keys to compassion and each one of those keys c is for compassion o is for own your story m is for mirror mirror p is for playful messy a is for affect self-care self-trust intrinsic extrinsic no um, organize your village and then know your boundaries k-n-o-w oh. and then i use those 10 keys in relationship with the inner family mm-hmm. and then implement that externally. Excellent. That's how we, that's how we roll. Sounds good to me. Uh, all right. And if folks want to listen to your radio show, when, when are you here at mutiny? Every other Monday okay. from four to six, ask Dr. Beth, Wonderful. America's teenologist. And, uh, the best way to find out which, which week I'm on is go to drbeth.com or find me on Facebook. Dr. Beth, America's teenologist, and I will be having a radio show and you'll be able to find these podcasts on iTunes and we'll be getting out there more and more. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to hearing that. So thanks again so much, Dr. Beth, for coming in. Thank you. Great interview. So wonderful talking with you and your bravery in showing up and living your out loud and proud life. Oh, sure. You rock. Oh, thank you. Thanks. And uh, coming up next will be uh, Global Val with uh, Women's Magazine. You'll also be a guest on, on Val's show. So that'll be coming up at, uh, at 2 o'clock. So stay tuned to Mutiny Radio. We'll be playing a song and then uh, signing off shortly. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. So you can get what we had here last week. 
which is the way he wants it. Well, he gets it. I don't like it.
What's so civil about war anyway? And that's all for the weekly review today. Stay tuned for Global Val with Women's Magazine. Tonight, some few show plugs. There's Pam's Comedy Clubhouse here at Mutiny Radio. There's the Queer Open Mic happening at Modern Times Bookstore at 7.30. And there's the Culture Collective show in Oakland tonight at 7 p.m. So stay tuned. And we'll be back uh, next week. Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternatives to smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby. Good, because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4AltaCalifornia.com. That's 4AltaCalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical-free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4AltaCalifornia.com. Join us every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. for Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse here on Mutiny Radio. I'm your host, Pam Benjamin, bringing you the best of San Francisco's underground comedy scene here every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. It's only $2. You can bring your own beer and listen to comedy here every Friday, 8 to 10 p.m., 21st in Florida. It's MutinyRadio.fm. The House of Pride radio show, LGBT radio for everyone. Funky interviews, funky beats, talking drag queens, and much, much more. It's LGBT radio for everyone. Listen live every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. House of Pride Radio, LGBT radio for everyone. Celebrating the considerable contributions of the LGBT community in San Francisco and beyond. Every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. Listen here for hot new local beats by LGBT artists and listen to live interviews. Tune in, turn on every Wednesday, 6 to 8 p.m. House of Pride Radio with drag queen personalities, Tweeka Turner and Pearl T. Are you sick of reading the news? Do you even bother to read the news anymore? Do you need someone to read it to you because it's just so disgusting and depressing? If so, then the Weekly Review is the show for you. Join Roman Reimer as Roman reads the news, whether it be LGBTQ issues, cannabis legalization, prison abolition, police brutality, or many other issues that sometimes the media just doesn't feel the need to cover. 
Listen in Fridays at noon at Mutiny Radio. Romans also joined by activists, community organizers, artists, and many other great folks working to make the world a better place. Have no fear. The news is here. And if you feel like yelling about it, well then Roman will be yelling with you. The Weekly Review, Fridays at noon on Mutiny Radio. Hello, comrades. This is your comrade, Zach Wiseman, host of government-sponsored program, Communist Folding Chairs, mandated by the Kremlin to occur every Monday, 2 to 4 p.m., broadcast by our comrades at mutinyradio.fm. Sit, relax, listen to my comrades in stand-up comedy march honorably through their cold balance sets, and other comrades make fun of them. Because in Mother Russia, if you can't laugh about starving for turnip, and beat and attention, you are a capitalist pig, and the KB, KGB will visit you shortly. Every Monday, 2 to 4 p.m. Invest in the future of your community, MutinyRadio.fm and the Boys and Girls Club Mission Clubhouse needs your help. Please donate to keep the Radio Clash Children's Institute right now alive on the air every Thursday from 4.50 to 5.50 p.m. Donations are tax deductible. Donate online at www.MutinyRadio.fm or just stop by the station at 21st Street and Florida. That's 2781 21st Street and throw some cash in the big glass jar. Stop by to experience live audience-friendly shows every day of the week and know that you're supporting the future of the mission by keeping free speech alive for all ages. This PSA is brought to you by your friends and community partners at MutinyRadio.fm. Hi, I'm Chuck Weiss. If you're an old baby boomer like me, pain is probably something you've learned to live with by now. Yes, there are drugs on the market that help, but they come with side effects and shouldn't be used for extended periods of time. But fortunately, there is an effective natural pain reliever available in this state, medical cannabis. Let me tell you about Alta California Botanicals. They're a manufacturer of fine cannabis tinctures. Now you can take your medication in liquid form, much more discreet than pulling out a pipe and lighting up. Alta California Botanicals offers five different formulations, each one addressing a specific medical concern. There are two that are designed for pain, one to be swallowed, of course, and a new one for external use only. I'm going to have to try that one myself on my arthritic fingers. There's a tincture for stress and one for anxiety. They'll certainly keep you mellow. And there's even one for people who suffer from MS. The cannabis tinctures from Alta California Botanicals come in one half ounce bottles. Each batch is laboratory tested and certified free of pesticides and mold. In other words, completely natural and unadulterated. Alta California Botanicals doesn't sell directly to the public, of course, but if you visit their website at Alta, A-L-T-A, CaliforniaBotanicals.com and enter your zip code, they'll give you a list of dispensaries near you that keep their tinctures in stock. Now here's a tip for the holiday season. Keep a couple of extra bottles of the stress formula handy. It'll help maintain your cool amongst all that shopping madness. 
I'm Chuck Weiss for AltaCaliforniaBotanicals.com. Do you have a great idea for a product or service but don't know where to start? Are you looking to expand your current business? Women's Initiative of San Francisco began its business management training program for low-income, high-potential women in 1988. To attend a free orientation on how you can achieve your dream of starting your own business, or for more information, please contact 415-641-3460 or visit womensinitiative.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Planned Parenthood is a trusted healthcare provider, an informed educator, a passionate advocate, and a global partner helping similar organizations around the world. Planned Parenthood delivers vital reproductive health care, sex education, and information to millions of women, men, and young people worldwide. For nearly 100 years, Planned Parenthood has promoted a common-sense approach to women's health and well-being based on respect for each individual's rights to make informed, independent decisions about health, sex, and family planning. Please visit PlannedParenthood.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. The Berkeley Free Clinic was founded in 1969 as a street medicine clinic, but quickly found a permanent home in the Berkeley community. It has become an icon in the area and has served countless thousands in a variety of ways during its 45-year history. Fees have never been charged for any services, materials, medications, or supplies provided at the Berkeley Free Clinic. Income has been generated solely via individual or organizational donations and government programs. To volunteer your time or to make a donation, or for more information, visit berkeleyfreeclinic.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. 